Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. We are so lucky that we can sit here and explore in this way. You know, there are many places where we wouldn't have the health or the freedom or the safety or the leisure time to be able to do this together. It's quite a delight. I just want to go over one point before we keep going and then I'll get to your question. Um, The motivation for having these talks that we have together when I come to town is Mm -hmm. to, to make sure that yoga is a living tradition not something of antiquarian or exotic interest. And a living tradition only happens when you combine committed practice with a critical engagement of theory. And the two always have to go hand in hand. Without practice, the theory remains just another intellectual game And because yoga philosophy is so dialectic, it's the game of games and doesn't end. Um, Without practice, the philosophy doesn't make sense. There's nothing new about it. It's one thing to know that everything changes. It's another thing to actually feel that in your heart. It's one thing to preach nonviolence. It's another thing to actually really work in your everyday life in not harming in terms of body, speech, and mind, internally and externally. And secondly, we have to take yoga philosophy and we have to put it to work on contemporary issues. Patanjali lived in an iron age. He didn't know about the telephone. He didn't know about email. He didn't know about the genetic causes of a lot of disease. And he didn't know about the printing press. But I think one thing that is the most different from Patanjali's time to ours 
is postmodernism. Whether you are a postmodernist or you don't even know what that means, there is something new in our culture where we tend to distrust grand narratives that explain everything. And one of the things that's compelling about yoga is that you're not asked to believe in something without being able to test it out. And there's something very liberating about that. (coughs) We're not asking you to believe in a creation story, to believe in a theory about life after death, to believe that there is no life after death, to believe that there is neither a theory of life after death nor no theory of life after death. Or to ask you to believe that God is like Santa Claus, punishing you for your actions in a future life or not punishing you for an action. If you don't have a Santa Claus God, there has to be something else as a mechanism to keep things in check. And that mechanism is karma. And it's around karma that the entire yoga practice pivots. That you're asked to meditate on the kind of actions you're taking and the consequences of those actions. And that's the heart of practice. So that enlightenment is the oftentimes slow waking up from the habitual patterns of attachment and aversion, especially our attachments to our stories about self that keep us enclosed in an isolated and self-referential world. And whenever we're caught up in our own theories about ourselves, we're separated from life. And that gap is called dukkha. That separation we feel is called dukkha. And the problem is, is if we don't see that we're creating the separation, we actually start building ourselves up to deal with the dukkha rather than allowing ourselves to become nothing, literally no thing. And if you reflect on your life, the times in your life when you are probably the most happy, most content, and most clear were probably times where you were not creating a story about yourself. They were probably times where you were so fully in an experience that there was just what was happening without a separate me. And that the more you create a separate me, the more there is anxiety, the more there is isolation and separateness. And that's what this practice is about. Thank you. When you spoke about the terrorists, you said they had proof and space. I sort of went, oh, what, what, why would you qualify them as having proof and space? To me, Faith has nothing to do with their beliefs right or wrong. Uh, totally besides the fact that I might go to heaven and now the stories to, to their heaven with all the stories that accompany that. Uh, to me, what they did had I don't know. I was so 
Well, you can't critique them on their faith. They believe that if they carry out those actions, they are going to be secured a place in heaven, and there is no doubt. And one of the things we know, especially from contemporary neuroscience, is that what motivates our actions are our basic belief systems about things. If your basic belief system is that you are an individual me in an objective world, everything is going to seem separate. Physics realized this in the 1950s, but I don't think anybody else has caught up with it yet. (laughs) That the observer always participates in what's observed because they're not separate. And I don't think especially fields like psychology have not been able to deal with that yet. Um, So faith is used in the sense of um, absence of doubt opposition into the To a certain degree, it's kind of like saying, how do you, you know, someone will say, I have faith because the Quran says that this is the word of God. Well, how do you know it's the word of God? Because it says it in the Quran. Or you say, you know, these, these tablets were handed down to Moses by God. How do you know it's God's word? Because it says it in the book. Well, why isn't Windows 95 God's word? Why isn't I Love Huckabee's God's word? Why isn't Raiders of the Lost Ark God's word? Why is that book God's word? And who? how can you prove it otherwise? This is Freud's great move. You know, For those of you that read Freud, his early work is so fun because when people would challenge him on his theory of the unconscious, He'd saying, he'd saying, you can't object. You just don't understand because there's something unconscious blocking your understanding. <laughs> <laughs> and it served him perfectly. And it's that same kind of logic that creates fundamentalism. Because we believe this is God's word and we have perfect faith in it as God's word, there's no room for dialogue. And it's interesting... Yeah, go travel around a little bit and call that stupidity. (laughs) I think it's easy to sit here and call that stupidity, but that's how most of the world operates, is that we have core beliefs, and of course, our corest belief is in me. And, um, you know, in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says, you know, you need to have in the practice shraddha or faith. But faith is meant differently because he's not giving you something (coughs) to have faith in other than the fruits of your own practice. And that drives people up the wall because they, they, he wants, people want a God to believe in. And he's giving you a hard time on that point. I mean, even he says, if you want to meditate on Ishwara, then do pranava on Om. This is, if you didn't get the joke. He has a a sense of humor. He's saying, meditate on the meaning of Om. Well, what's the meaning of Om? And the point is, is you start to see that whatever meaning 
you ascribe to Om is all a superimposition on the sound of Om. And you're learning something about how the mind works. And then he says, um, because linguistic concepts are always at a distance from reality. So that's what I meant by faith, which is totally related to your belief system. So let's again tie this into the eighth limb and the first limb. If the eighth limb of the Yoga Sutra claims oneness or samadhi or complete absorption in relationship, then the first limb guarantees that you're going to take action based on the inherent relationality of your existence. And if the first action is non-harming, then the kind of actions you're going to take are based on the belief that you are not separate from, as opposed to the belief that you are chosen and somehow special. I got into trouble last time I talked about this, but (laughs) I'll say it again, but you know, It's a longer conversation, but it might be possible that the non-dual traditions of yoga, Buddhism, and Taoism are not talking about the same goal that the Abrahamic traditions are talking about. That I think we like to think that all religions are talking about the same thing, and it's possible that they're not. And I think if we can allow that possibility, we'll have more success in dialogue between traditions, rather than thinking that they're all the same. Like if you and I consider ourselves all the same, there's nothing interesting to talk about. If you like trumpet, then what you're interested is that Chet Baker is not Miles Davis. You're interested in difference. David used a word earlier, other. When you no longer treat people as objects, you can actually begin to treat them as other. In other words, someone becomes so other that you allow for difference. Oneness is difference, not sameness. A lot of people think oneness means we're all the same. And that creates fundamentalism because it precludes different it precludes relationships it kills the possibility of relationship what actually creates oneness is the ability to tolerate difference I allow you to be so other that suddenly we're in relationship because you're outside of what I need you to be It's like when you're in a loving relationship with someone, the more you know them, the more you have no idea who they are. You wake up in the morning and you look over at them and you think, what have I got myself into here? (laughs) And suddenly there's the possibility of bhakti or love, devotion. Love can't occur when it's personal because you know them so well that you know it. And in the knowing it, 
you've created an object. But when you allow the other to be so other that you have no idea, suddenly there is love. Because you're devoted to something that you don't know. Oh, try this. <laughs> this is not just poetic license with a philosophical text. This is meant to be something to put into practice. It has something to do with faith, doesn't it? It has everything to do with faith. Faith in something other than your own self-reference. Yeah. Can I read another poem? <laughs> Mudge Percy. What's your name? You asked a question before about action. Yeah. So I, I hope that uh, this responds to your question. It's called to be of use. The people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black, sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves like an ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along who stand in the line and haul in their places, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident, Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hopi vases that held corn, are put in museums. But you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. The pitcher cries for water to carry, a person for work that is real. I think that when we listen to this statement, I wander about concealed. I do not know who or what I am. I wander about concealed and wrapped in thought. Is somebody who's living in a virtual world. And when you're caught up in your own ideas and their separation, there are always symptoms that arise in that separation. Greed, envy, ill will, anxiety, hatred. When we're caught up in greed, for example, and envy, 
We do work that satisfies me, leaving us unsatisfied. And we do it for reward. And we do it for reward. Without and then any we any intrinsic value in the work itself, except for the external yeah. the reward that is external. Yeah. And then we experience what lack. So, in the same way that a Hopi vase is sitting in a museum, she says, but you and I know that that's meant to move corn. That a person's life is meant for work that is real. And when your work is not real, you feel it, fragmented. When you say, my meditation practice is separate from the world, your meditation practice will always spin in cycles of unsatisfying habit. (coughs) When you think that your yoga practice is an internal work separate from culture, then you will keep your yoga practice an internal work separate from culture. It's a fragmentation you create in your own mind that leads to unsatisfaction. Hence the importance of the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna who does not want to fight yeah. and is told that he must because yeah. that's what he's here for. Yeah. To act. Yeah. To take action. Yeah. Dante has a wonderful line. He says, a place in hell is secured for people who remain neutral in times of crisis. A place in hell is secured for people who remain neutral in times of crisis. You see somebody who gets pregnant, they have a baby, they can't do their three-hour third series practice, so they hire seven babysitters and you know, everybody's freaked out so that she can do her practice. Her practice. This is ridiculous. That when you start to see that whatever shows up in your life is practice, then you start to include your obstacles as the actual path. You take these heavy bricks that at first seem like symptoms and you take them off of your head and you put them on the ground and you build yourself a path out of the very stuff of your life. Not some exotic philosophy, but actually that exotic philosophy wrestled with and struggled with and brought to life in this time, in this gender, in this culture, in this economy. You can't separate nature and culture. (coughs) They go together. And then your practice starts moving. Why? Because it includes other people. It's kind of like if you visualize your practice as a path, literally. In, in, um, you know, in Sanskrit, the path is called, you know, the word is marga, which is actually very similar to the word Tao. Because it doesn't just mean a path like that you walk on, but it means a way, a way to do something. The word Tao means way. It means street. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, at first your path is like a, a bumpy forest, you know, clearing. So you have a sense someone's walked on it before, but you don't quite know the way. And then you learn a little technique, an inward spiral, an outward spiral. And then suddenly the path has some signposts. You say, oh, wow, you know, like at this tree I take a right turn and in this back bend it's good to do this with my tailbone. And then you learn from people who've gone through the path and the path becomes smoother. And then you learn a little bit more about, you know, the philosophy and psychology and ethics that underlie the path. And then that's like, you know, putting asphalt down on the path and <laughs> paving it. You can go faster, more efficiently, smoothly. you know, smoothly. And then you get stuck in traffic jams because there's all these individuals in their paths bumping into each other, rushing to their yoga class. Have you ever seen, do people in Ottawa rush to their yoga class? <laughs> in Toronto, you see people on their bicycles with their yoga mat, <coughs> cutting other people off. You know? um, but then they do this thing on highways, I don't know if they do it here, where they paint these diamonds mm -hmm. on the highway. It's like a diamond-studded highway. What, does the, what do the diamonds connote? Carpool. That is the fastest lane. Mm -hmm. Why is it the fastest lane? Because it includes other people. Mm -hmm. People cooperating. Mm -hmm. And likewise, if you think enlightenment is a solo project, you're going to be stuck in traffic mm -hmm. with other people who think enlightenment is a solo project. Mm -hmm. Burning a lot of natural resources. Mm -hmm. But when you start to see that actually practice includes other people, which is the first yama, then your practice becomes more efficient because it's not about me. And then you're in the carpool lane <laughs> with nowhere to go. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I spend my days working with girls and seven-year-olds, and I'm trying <coughs> to help teach them certain things, but sometimes I feel like I'm imposing my own expectations upon them. So I want to be able to share sort of what you're teaching and what I'm learning with them, but without feeling that I'm controlling them. Can you give me some insight on that? I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're in this together. The first is devotion, that you're in this together. And that actually sometimes you might not know better, <laughs> but sometimes you do. And because you're older, you hopefully have greater resources like patience and flexibility of listening and the ability to give up your point of view. Um, I'd say that's a big start. The great Zen teacher Shinru Suzuki, in one of my favorite lines, says, if you want to control a cow, give it a large pasture. <laughs> if you want to control a kid, give her a large pasture. This is not naive. It's saying there's still a pasture. There's a fence <coughs> and there's a pasture. But it's so large that you have space. 
you have space. The great psychologist Donald Winnicott, who was a great yogi, he had this term, the good enough mother. That when you're not trying so hard to be spectacular and you're not neglectful, there's a middle path, which is being good enough. And he says, when you are a good enough caregiver, you give the child the capacity to be alone. And in the capacity to be alone, they can go on being. In the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says, though aspects of our psychology are universal, because our experience is always filtered through our subjectivity, we are each going to experience the object of what we're noticing in a different way. Which allows for every person to have their <coughs> subjective experience. I have a very, very basic question, which I've always asked myself. I, w- I went to, uh, I came to yoga with physical exercise, and then by sheer accident I discovered the philosophical side of it. And I'm still trying to link to what's the link? The discipline of the body will bring discipline in the life and in your mind, but how did the philosophy develop? Have a look from from the exercise or do the exercise happen to uh, link to the philosophy? How how did it develop? What what was it the egg or the chicken? (laughs) Chicken for the egg first. (laughs) Question. Why do you need to make them opposites? No, not or separate. Relationship between the two. How do they link together? Yeah. Everything is linked together. I don't know how. (laughs) Um, I think what you're asking is what's the role of the physical practice? Well, the physical practice is partly to to stretch the mind and body outside of its habitual patterns of thought and sensation and preference and movement to start to wake up the intelligence that we call prana and describes in physiological and an energetic sense um, what... Patanjali describes in a psychological sense. It's the the waking up of the energy of the body because there's this idea that because you're perceiving the world through your mind and body, the greatest part of the world you can actually ever know is your own mind and body because it's always present. So you start studying how your mind and body operate and you actually start studying the nature of reality.
and it gives you a good ass so that if you are still thinking that romantic love is going to solve all your problems you can uh, explore that side of dukkha <laughs> but you go to places where everybody has a great ass and there's a lot of dukkha I just came back from Santa Monica which is like the center of yoga on the planet <laughs> and everybody has these amazing physical asana practices and they're so stressed out about their practice the language that they use to talk about their asana practice mm -hmm. is like of, of longing for the next technique it's a fascinating thing to notice um, I'm generalizing a tiny bit but the point is is that the asana practice is a practice of meditation it's a deep practice of insight and it's only one of eight limbs in Patanjali's approach but it's nevertheless an important limb and I think when we start to look deep into asana practice we start to see that working with the body is also working with your mind that you can't actually work with deeper physiological holding patterns without working with your psychology that physiological contraction and psychological contraction actually go together and physiological awakening and psychological awakening also go together so asanas will facilitate meditation and vice versa not that they will just facilitate meditation they, they are meditation practice yeah. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow and on Sunday. Yeah. Tomorrow we're going to spend the day upside down. And Sunday we're going to spend the day inside out. <laughs> tomorrow we're going to explore inversions in very basic, basic ways. And on Sunday we're going to look at some of the more subtle and internal practices using pranayama as the focus. Are there any other questions before we finish? Thank you, Basha. And thank you very much. Because we uh, 
we didn't start mm-hmm. chanting. Can we finish chanting? <coughs> Is that okay? We always chant in Sanskrit. And uh, so that's great. It's great to do that. But sometimes when we always chant in Sanskrit, people don't always know what it means or what it is that we're actually chanting. So let's chant in English. We'll call and respond, and we'll chant in English. So you can just let your eyes close, bring your palms together, and you'll just repeat after me. We'll call and respond. Life and death Life and are of supreme importance. Are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Do not squander your life. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. Especially us. Especially us. Namaste. Namaste.